The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Waging War on a Pathogen. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA chief. I do think that there's an end to this. We, we, I think we need to start defining what that is right now and defining the stages of what a return to better times looks like and how we're going to get there. And the Federal Reserve's prescription for the economy, former Fed Governor Kevin Warsh. If we solve the symptoms but we don't treat the underlying patient, it won't be money well spent. It's Friday, March 20th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand by, Joe, in three, two, one. Here's Mike. Here. Good morning and welcome to CNBC. I'm Joe Kernan. Eventually, along with Becky Quick uh, and Andrew Ross Sorkin, there's a reason uh, that I'm at the NASDAQ. We can keep this shot uh, up no matter what. Uh, the other shots we got of uh, the whims of uh, modern day technology uh, are in full effect this morning. But I'm here. U.S. As we've been reporting, cities across the U.S. have continued to implement mandatory restrictions to prevent the spread of coronavirus. Yesterday, California Governor Gavin Newsom issued the first statewide order for its residents to stay home. Under the order, essential services such as gas stations, pharmacies, grocery stores, and delivery restaurants will remain open. Non-essential services include dine-in restaurants, bars, gyms, and convention centers. Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf also ordered all non-life-sustaining businesses to be shut down or risk enforcement from police. Also yesterday, we learned Italy's death toll surpassed China's, and U.S. health officials warned the virus can also be deadly for young people. The FDA continues to search for a vaccine, but admitted they are still months away. This is all scary and clearly unprecedented. Today on our show, as most days, we were joined by Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner and a voice of information and reason for us these last few weeks. Becky Quick started by asking Dr. Gottlieb, are we at war? And Scott, good morning. Good to talk to you today. Thank you. Ken Rogoff said this is a war. Would you agree with that? Well, I think we're at battle with this pathogen. Um, And, you know, we, we need to implement these mitigation steps to try to curtail transmission. But I think what you're what you're starting to sense right now is people want to understand when these current lockdowns and restrictions will lift and when normal life's gonna return and you know when we'll begin to defeat this. And you know, I do think that there's an end to this. We we I think we need to start defining what that is right now and defining the stages of what a return to better times looks like and how we're gonna get there. And you know, I'll just sort of pause but I'll say it's not just a question of ending these restrictions. It's it's certain things are going to change. There is isn't sort of an on off switch here that'll flip one day. So we'll we'll unwind some of the measures and we'll adopt adopt others. Uh, we'll secure also in the process a better toolbox to deal with this threat threat, which we don't have right now, which we can have in the context of the current epidemic, um, so we don't get caught flat footed again. I got an email from one of the nurses in my town who works at a local hospital here who was chastising some of the other moms who are letting their kids go out and play and maybe joking around a little bit about this. She said that right now there are 42 cases, 42 cases in the hospital she works in. Six of them are on ventilators. Um, I, I think a lot of us know that something's coming. Maybe this is the quiet before the storm. What is this going to look like in a couple of weeks? 
Well, I think we're going to see the healthcare system um, start to get really pressed and on the, on the uh, precipice of being overwhelmed. And we talk about assistance for the business sector. We ought to think about, you know, massive assistance for the healthcare sector and the life science sector to try to build out some of these capacities. You know, I'll give you sort of an example. We're focused on on developing hospital beds right now. We're not probably not doing enough. We also need to focus on developing places to discharge COVID patients too. So the two, the two ways to increase hospital beds is one, build more hospital beds, which we can do, but also build facilities or secure facilities that you can discharge patients to and increase flow. So what can you do? Well, you can increase uh, reimbursement substantially for taking care of COVID patients in a skilled nursing facility or even home health that you might set up in a vacant hotel. If you increase that to 200% or 300% of Medicare, you'll see a market form for creating facilities or freeing up existing facilities that you can discharge patients to out of the hospital when they become stable. And that's going to you know, enable the, a lot of uh, hospital bed capacity to open up. You're going to want dedicated facilities because you're not going to want to mix COVID patients with patients who don't have the virus. Um, but we can start securing that right now. We need to start thinking about these things. You know, with respect to all the uh, shortages in personal protective equipment among among doctors, we should be thinking about a national strategy to develop massive manufacturing capacity right now to crash manufacturing of some of these components. I mean, we built aircraft carriers in record time during World War II. Certainly, we can stand up a facility to start punching out some of these plastic parts that are missing for um, some of the diagnostic testing. We have 3D printing facilities and other capabilities. We're not focused on this in sort of a national way uh, in, that we would need to if it was, if it was truly to get to your first point, a wartime footing. Can we, can we just very briefly talk about what, what you mean by that? When we spoke yesterday off camera, you were telling me that the real problem we have with some of these testing kits is getting the access to the small uh, ticket items, things like the, the swabs that you use to swab someone's nose. Why is it so hard to get those things? The menu, it's always the lowest um, margin product in the supply chain that ends up being your weak link. You'll never have a shortage of the $100,000 scanner. You're, you're going to have a shortage of the one-cent swab or the little tip to the pipette that you use to get the sample into the cup to get it into the scanner. And those are the things that are going into shortage because they're manufactured in a small number of plants. The supply chain is limited. It's consolidated manufacturing precisely because it is low margin, and it's hard to increase the capacity of those plants on the fly. Um, but if we sort of took a deliberate effort now to do it um, in a coordinated way, we could probably stand up manufacturing of some of these things in, in you know, fairly efficient time frames. So we're short on the reagents. We're short on the swabs. We're short on the plastic thing pipette tips that go on the um, device used to move the sample into the scanner, and we're short on little plastic cups that go in the wells on the scanners. And it's not that we're short, it's that we can only produce a certain amount each month, and we're using it up. We're consuming everything we make. And so the upper limit on what you can test in this country right now isn't defined by how many scanners we have. It's going to be defined by all these little low-margin commodity products that we should be able to you know, commandeer some manufacturing in a, in a market-based way, not take it over, but give people incentives to crash into these um, spaces and start developing these things. Andrew? Hey, doctor, I, I have two questions for you. They actually come from viewers who had sent me, uh, sent me these questions over the past 24 hours. One is actually about Japan um, and specifically why uh, we haven't seen the outbreak and the pandemic there in, in, in really the way I think that, that most doctors and scientists had been anticipating, given its proximity to China and the travel between those countries. Do you have a view about what's happened there? 
Well, they, they adopted um, mitigation containment strategies early, so they did, they did do a good job of trying to contain the cases that they were finding. They haven't been screening a lot, and so it's a little bit of an anomaly where I've been of the belief that they have more spread than they're currently detecting, but that's, it's been two or three weeks of me believing they have more spread than they're currently detecting, and you would, you would think that you'd start to see a surge of cases show up in the healthcare setting. So it's not entirely clear whether or not um, they got lucky, whether or not the early containment strategies worked and they were able to separate people early and contain and quarantine people, or whether or not there is um, some sort of furtive spread in the society, and we're going to see those cases start to emerge. Remember, there was spread all through January into February uh, in the United States, and we didn't really we didn't detect it at all in the hospitals, but there were people getting sick uh, in a sporadic fashion, and then all of a sudden you've seen this explosion. The cases you're seeing now in the hospital didn't get COVID-19 um, three days ago. They probably got two weeks ago. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there's a delay and there's a question of whether or not right. uh, Japan's just delayed. The other question coming in relates to technology and, and maybe ultimately our privacy. But uh, a reader is pointing out that in China and South Korea, especially as this uh, on the other side of the peak and when you want more people to go out uh, in public, they're doing lots of testing at shopping malls for employees. People have QR codes uh, on their phones that identify what their what their health and history was on this very issue. Um, we haven't talked at all about that in this country just yet, and I don't know if we're gearing up for it, but should we be? I think we should be thinking about how we do containment on a massive scale in the country. You, you know, you, you have two choices, mitigation, tell everyone to stay at home, uh, a containment and quarantine strategy, a massive testing strategy where you, where you identify people and quarantine them and contain the spread, or some combination of the two. We can get to some combination of the two. Um, right now we're relying more on mitigation because we don't have the tools that you talked about in place. We can get those tools in place pretty quickly. I mean, this isn't something that we just have to wait to let this all pass and then we'll do this in September to prevent another epidemic. If we can get a point-of-care diagnostic onto the market, something that sits in the doctor's office, uh, like the flu swab that you're, you're accustomed to getting or, or Cepheid's Gene Expert platform, um, you, could, you could dramatically increase scanning by just putting those tests in the doctor's offices. There's no reason right. we can't have that. The technology's there. But do you see the American Dr. public Gottlieb, sharing, that, sharing that information wherever they go publicly? There's I mean, a way like to on a phone, having to get scanned to walk into a, to, a, to a place. Also in Israel, supposedly, they're actually going to start tracking the phones to see if you've come in contact with other people with COVID. Look, the technology is there to do all the things that you're describing. You need a, a logistics um, organization in charge of a national response to do this. You can't do it on a state-by-state -state basis and be very effective in a country where you have a very mobile population. So we need to do this at a national level. Big states can do it, but where you'd, ideally you'd want one national uniform platform. We should be doing it. South Korea implemented all the things you're talking about, and they had you know, perhaps the best experience relative to the outbreak, the size of the outbreak they had, they were able to quell it um, quite efficiently using technology and a case containment strategy coupled to mitigation steps where they did shut down, you know, parts of the country on a rolling fashion in schools, but they did it in a very deliberate fashion. Hey, Scott, uh, to this point, the conventional wisdom has been that this is dangerous, but mostly only for pay people who are ages 50 and up, but especially for people even older than that. Yesterday, there was some new data that came out, though, that, that suggests this is quite a bit riskier for anybody who's age 20 and up. Can you talk about those numbers? 
Well, that's right. And there's new data out of um, in Nature this morning, a study, a model that looks at the fatality rate in, in Wuhan and, and estimates that it was lower than what was previously estimated. They estimated that was about the case fatality rate fatality rate was about 1.4%. But what they show is also a linear increase in hospitalizations as age increases from 20. And that's consistent with what the CDC put out um, a couple of days ago on the experience of the first about 2,500 patients here in the United States, where they showed a very high hospitalization rate among those, you know, 20 to 44, 45 to 54, 55 to 64, um, and also a high case fatality rate. And the case fatality rate for those 45 to 54 was 0.5 to 0.8. That's very high. Um, with, you know, with seasonal flu, we say the case fatality rate overall is 0.1, so it's significantly higher than that. But the other thing to remember is that the case fatality rate in flu is 0.1 because it's being driven by a high case fatality rate in those over the age of 65, where it, where it approaches about 1%. But the case fatality rate for a 45-year-old with the flu is like 0.02 or 0.01. So this is, you know, 10 times perhaps more deadly in a 45-year-old than the flu. It's just that you're dealing with a lower number overall, um, so it doesn't look as, as um, startling. But that's a very high increase in uh, morbidity and mortality among a, a healthy 45-year-old. Um, than relative to flu. 54 to 64, the case fatality rate on the CDC data was 1.4 to 2.6 in a range. And the hospitalization rates um, are high. Uh, overall, between the ages of 20 to 54, the overall hospitalization rate was about 40% of all hospitalizations were between that age. That's almost um, spot on with what China's experience was, where they, said, where they found that 38% of all their hospitalizations were between the age of 20 to 55 uh, in, in the province of Wuhan. So, um, you know, young people are getting sick. They're getting hospitalized. They're not dying at the same rate as older individuals, but some of them are getting into trouble. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you. We appreciate your update, and we'll check in with you again hopefully early next week. Next on Squawk Pod, the Federal Reserve's emergency measures to buoy the economy. A former Fed governor on where we go from here. The Fed has had to come to wartime footing more quickly uh, than we did in 2008. So I think they're off to a they're off to a good start. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC, coming to you today from several locations, thanks to several ways of connecting. Uh, I am Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick and Andrew uh, Ross Sorkin. I'm uh, helming the, the NASDAQ because of the uh, vagaries and vicissitudes of, uh, of technology. We think we know everything, but the, these shots uh, from remote locations can go down any time. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe that would be a welcome respite on some days uh, if we were just off the air. But, uh, <laughs> Joe, uh, I, I got to tell you, it's a miracle that we're even on the air with some of this stuff. I can't I believe that I'm able to put this on. I don't have anybody here working with me. So this is, you know, this is it. <laughs> I'm actually amazed the stuff works as well as it does. And um, Andrew, this is your how do you like it? This is your first uh, this is your first time away. Uh, you're you're going to stay there or you're you're possibly going to be called back in here at some point. Right. 
We'll see. I, I imagine I may get called back in here. We have a flood here right. in the basement. No flood here. So We're good. Below me, I'm, I'm in my uh, my my rubber rain boots. Uh, literally, as with wires, speak. with wires so, uh, on the floor, which is uh, with with wires on the floor. So let's just cross our fingers for the next yeah, cr- hour. Or so. Exactly. Uh, cross our fingers that nothing does happen. Is what you're saying? Uh, right. Right. Okay. Over the past two weeks, the Federal Reserve has taken drastic steps to keep money flowing through the financial system due to the dramatic changes that the spread and fear of coronavirus have brought to business as usual. The Fed has cut interest rates to near zero, introduced a huge bond buying program, and revamped a crisis-era emergency lending program. On Squawk Box three weeks ago, yes, just three weeks ago, Kevin Warsh, a former governor of the Federal Reserve Board, joined us to discuss an idea he presented in a Wall Street Journal op-ed. sooner they cut, the better. If I were giving them advice, I would say get to this weekend, take stock, reach out starting at the close of business today to the world's central bankers, and at the very least on Sunday night before markets open, have a unified statement from the big central bankers in the world that they are all over this. It's a signal to businesses out there that um, they shouldn't decide to give up on 2020. Now, Warsh was in the room in 2008 when Ben Bernanke's Fed contended with the crisis in America's banks. So his argument, based on that experience, was that big, bold action from the U.S. Central Bank and others around the world was needed. After that's all basically happened, Kevin Warsh was back on Squawk Box today saying that the Fed still has some powers to tap to keep a liquidity crisis from turning into a solvency crisis for American businesses and households. Here's Warsh with Becky Quick. Kevin, what do you think? The Fed has taken some major action since you first started calling for this. Are you happy with what you've seen? Yeah, well, Becky, thanks very much. Uh, The U.S. has suffered from the largest liquidity shock uh, since World War II, and the Fed has had to come to wartime footing more quickly uh, than we did in 2008. So I think they're off to a they're off to a good start, and I think lucky for them it's a Friday. Fridays uh, when markets close will probably give them the first opportunity to reflect at the powerful weapons they've sent, evaluate what targets they've hit and really evaluate uh, what to do next. And, you know, the weekends in, in, at high command at the Treasury and at the Federal Reserve in crises, this is the first time that they have where time can slow down. Time has moved incredibly quickly for them, I'm sure, over the last couple of weeks, a couple of weeks that are uh, probably times that uh, uh, they'd like to forget, but in a month or so they'll have a hard time remembering. So I think, Becky, the, the key here now is after having – uh, treated some of the underlying, treating some of the symptoms, symptoms in the treasury markets that Steve has talked about, symptoms across the economy. They need to now start to do three things. First, I'd suggest that they need to reveal their economic war plan, and uh, they've got incredibly talented people there. So I would expect this weekend, early next week, for them to be able to say what they've done, why they've done it. What are the ways and means to accomplish their objectives? Because first off, Becky, uh, the power is in the weapon, but the power is also in the explanation to get the country and the business sector on board. And so I suspect, Becky, that's the, the essential next step. And beyond that, while they have um, uh, treated some of the symptoms and done quite a bit to, to the problems that have emerged in the plumbing, my sense is the next move for liquidity is it needs to be broader. 
the distressed industries that Eamon talked about at the outset is the U.S. economy. So this liquidity now needs to be spread across the broad economy, and uh, that's the essential element, it strikes me, of responding to the 2020 pandemic. Yeah, not to mention the municipal bond market, which we spoke with uh, Steve Leisman about earlier. Um, that seems to be showing some of the signs of stress, too. It seems like there are just a lot of holes in the dike. They're going to have to stick their finger in a lot of different places. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, they, they've certainly come to the aid as an incredibly effective uh, support uh, to different parts of the plumbing in the house that are breaking. But, but they need to move, I'd say, more strategically and perhaps even less tactically than they have in the last couple of weeks. And I'm sure they understand this. And that is, unless they can get the economy to hang in there, unless they can get the economy to, to, to effectively buy some time so that businesses can wait to see what's the course of the virus, the course of the response, then they're going to have in several months' time liquidations, liquidations of businesses large and small. So what appears now in my judgment to be a liquidity crisis could turn into a solvency crisis, and that's why the overwhelming emphasis has to be to keep the foundation of the house alive, keep it so that all businesses large and small can draw on credit, can take cash, can make decisions so that they can keep their financial wherewithal so that in three or six or nine months, when this gets past us, they are able to move forward quite adroitly. And so, again, my, my, my call, which I suspect they all recognize in Congress, at the Treasury, at the Fed, is that the forceful joint action they need to take now is to provide liquidity to all solvent comers before the financial crisis to effectively buy a little bit of time and so we can see where this goes. There will be a future time where we, decisions could be made on what industries were particularly harmed. But if we save an industry, uh, if we solve the symptoms, but we don't treat the underlying patient, it really won't be, uh, it won't be money well spent. Kevin, how much of this is kind of moving beyond the scope of the Fed at this point. It seems to me like this is much more heavily going to lie in, in the fiscal stimulus and what Congress comes up with and how that money is, is spent, what industries are saved, um, also who gets relief and when. Yeah, I agree. I agree to an extent. Uh, making policy is about making choices. And so Congress has important choices to make over the course of the next week. But I don't think about it in a siloed way. I don't think, okay, the Fed has now passed its baton to the Congress. There are huge synergies from the Federal Reserve, the Treasury, and the Congress working together. So how would that work? In my judgment, the Fed would use its emergency authority, uh, which is in the trade called Section 13.3. They would break the glass of that authority, something they've done earlier this week with the primary dealers, something they did earlier this week with commercial paper. But they'd use that authority and provide liquidity to all businesses that were solvent as of the first of the year. But to your point, they, they're going to be doing things that will cross into the realm of the Treasury and the Congress, and that's where they need Treasury and Congress's full-scale support. If, for example, the Fed opened up their credit lines, used the banking system, and the banking system provided credit to firms, large and small, that were otherwise solvent several months ago, 
The Fed could provide credit to those firms, overwhelm them with liquidity for all comers, let them buy some time. But to the extent their losses, to the extent the crisis lasts longer, some of these businesses can't survive, then Congress needs to pick up the tab. The Fed is not in the business of spending, of spending fiscal resources. Congress is. So I would hope that in this stimulus three bill that Congress is working on, Congress would authorize the Treasury Department, the Federal Reserve, that they would backstop these massive credit lines. And unlike in 2008, the credit lines wouldn't just be going to a bunch of uh, Wall Street firms. These credit lines would be going to all companies across the country. And the Fed, we would use the Fed plumbing, the Fed infrastructure, the Fed supervision of banks with the other bank regulators. But the losses would be on the taxpayer's dime. And I think there are huge multiplier effects by having the Fed and the Treasury stand behind it. So I'm hopeful that in the coming days, some version of a plan would work that would reliquify this economy because time is, is going to be running against the Fed. So I do believe the time is right now for this full reliquification of the economy. And it requires all parts of government to act in concert. None of them can do it alone. Andrew? Hey, Kevin, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the structure of how you do that. Um, I got a lot of feedback in the past couple of days about this column I wrote about a equivalent of a, a large bridge loan that's provided to everybody uh, on the same terms so long as uh, they continue to employ people. But there were so many people in various industries who called me up and said, look, Andrew, I don't think you even understand because there's going to be no demand, like zero demand, restaurants, for example, hotels, for example, over the next two months. Uh, one CEO said to me, look, I would prefer to effectively get rid of everybody on my payroll for those months because I'll never be able to make that money back. Do you believe that? So I don't this think goes to your solvency question. Yeah, I don't think it's knowable at this point. Now, our government, Andrew, has put the economy in recession before, just never on purpose like we are right now. Um, right. Policy errors have caused many recessions in the post-war era. What our government's doing, and rightly so, is deciding that we are going to largely shut down huge parts of the economy in order to save lives, and importantly, so the economy can be on sounder footing on the other end. I think what my proposal, and I don't know if this is yours as well, is to buy time. If we were to extend for right. 90 days, uh, got to be the goal. Uh, 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 extend for 90 days and keep these businesses so they're liquefied. You and I and businesses and the healthcare community will know more about what to do. This is standard option value theory. We need to buy some time here. And I don't think the people that responded to you know the course of events. So liquefy early and, and your proposal in particular, for one, I would prefer that the business hang in there with five of their ten employees than go bankrupt and unemploy all ten of them. So because of but the uncertainty, here's the, Kevin, I'm, I'm hesitant, I'm hesitant, Andrew, right. to sort of make those micro decisions from, from, from central command. Right. Now, Kevin, the hard part is, and, and I, was, I was talking to um, Danny Meyer yesterday, you know, he laid off 2,000 people because he literally shuttered all of his restaurants and he doesn't know when they're going to be back online, if they're going to be back online. But assuming they're back online in two or three months from now, the argument he's making is labor is his cost, and if he keeps everybody on the payroll, yes, that would help him ramp up more quickly uh, when things get better, but unclear, as you know very well, that people are going to be dining out 
double or triple, uh, you know, come this summer or this fall when hopefully we get past this? Right. So, so, so I, think, I, I think you've got it right, which is we can decide, Congress can decide to spend billions of dollars to keep particular industries afloat. Um, but until they uh, provide a provision that keeps um, the revenue, the source of aggregate demand in those restaurants, on those airplanes, having an industry afloat with no revenue coming in doesn't buy you much. So again, this is just like 2008, which you covered exceptionally well. You go after the big proper names first. You go after individual firms and industries that are hurting only until you realize that the problems are generalized. So this is the weekend, it strikes me, where the Federal Reserve, the Treasury, and the Congress, who have done a very good job in these early, early, early innings in this war, and fired a lot of powerful bullets. This is where they can come out of their bunkers, come out of central command and say, uh, we need to hit the broader economy. We can worry about distressed industries later. So I'm, that's why I'm calling for this overall liquid, liquefaction now to avoid liquidation sometime later. Hey, Kevin, I want to thank you for your time today. Um, it's good talking to you, and I'm sure we'll be talking to you in the weeks to come. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Another day that we have put this together from our own home offices, thanks to a host of modern technologies, a really hardworking team, and you, podcast listeners. Thank you. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And please continue to download and subscribe to this podcast. We are available for free on your favorite podcast apps. We'll meet you back here on Monday. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.